the aftermath of the climactic events at the end of Parshas Balak, where Pinchas kills Kozbi and Zimri, thereby halting the deadly plague, Parshas Pinchas picks up with God's immediate reaction and declaration in the aftermath of those events, where God declares unambiguously his support for Pinchas' actions, the righteousness of those actions, how he has zealously guarded God's honor, he has quelled God's anger, and saved the Jewish people. As a result, the opening psukim of our Parsha seems to describe two different gifts, two different rewards that Pinchas merits because of his zealousness. And we will divide today's shir and tomorrow's shir into discussing these two psukim, these two rewards, these two gifts that Pinchas seems to receive as a reward uh, for his zealous righteousness in killing Cosby and Zimri. The first of those, the one we'll discuss today, is in Pasuk Yudbet, right at the beginning of the Parsha, where we are told, I'm giving the covenant of peace. Now, Rashi, it should be noted, uh, disagrees with pretty much all the other Mepharshim. Rashi does not see this as a separate, independent gift or reward, but rather as a statement that the reward which we will learn about tomorrow in the next Pasuk, that that single gift and reward that Pinchas is getting, it was being given bishalom, it was given with, so to speak, a full heart. That God is giving this with tremendous enthusiasm. And in essence, says Rashi, just like a human being would be very appreciative of someone who did a great favor to him or her, so to Hashem is saying, Pinchas did a great favor for me by killing these people, by halting the plague, by saving the Jewish people, and therefore I feel tremendously grateful to him, and therefore I will be giving this gift to him, this reward, which we'll talk about in the next Pasuk, and in tomorrow's year, I am doing it bishlemut with a full heart. But as I mentioned, that's really a minority view. Most Mepharshim do see bris shalom as an independent gift, and of course that begs the question, what is the gift of shalom? Shalom is a notoriously vague and ambiguous and hard to define term. Everyone wants peace, but no one really knows what it means. What exactly does it mean in this context that Pinchas is given the bris shalom? So one group of Mepharshim led by the Ibn Ezra and others, suggests that it means a protection from the Goal Hadam or other enemies who might have wanted to exact revenge on Pinchas. After all, Zimri was not just a person who presumably had a family who loved him, who would want revenge. He was the Nasi of the tribe of Shimon. There might have been other tribesmen or other people who were fans or Talmidim, if you were, of Zimri. He was a prominent person, and they might have wanted to take revenge on Pinchas. And therefore, he could have spent the rest of his life under the cloud of worry that someone was going to kill him, that he'd be always at risk for a revenge killing because of what he did. Therefore, Hashem says, I'm intervening, I have your back, as it were, I promise you, you are safe. No one will take revenge, not the family, not the friends of Zimri. You are safe, says Kodesh Baruch you have a brish shalom, nothing will happen to you. Another interpretation is suggested by the Seforno, that the brish shalom here means protection and peace from the Malachamabas, from the angel of death. That is to say, that Pinchas is blessed with an exceedingly long life, an uncharacteristically long life, longer even than other of his biblical contemporaries. And in fact, they point out that we have numerous indications from Tanakh, where Pinchas seems to be living many, many, many centuries into the future, way beyond the initial generation of the Midbar in which he currently lived in the stories that we're reading, even in the time of Plegj Begiva and other such stories, we see indications of Pinchas still living, and the, the Midrash, which is the basis of the Sforna Rebbein Abachaye, who make this point, say that Pinchas lived this incredibly long life. This goes beyond the fact, this goes in addition to the fact that there are some Midrashim who seem to say that Pinchas is Eliyahu Anavi, so maybe he didn't even just live long, maybe he has never even died. But even if you assume that Pinchas died, it's clear they say, based on Midrashim, that Pinchas lived a much longer life than most of his contemporaries, and they say that's what's being hinted at as this first reward, the reward for killing uh, Zim, Zimri and Cosby, the reward for halting the plague was a bris shalom, a bris of long life. 
A next interpretation uh, is offered by the Nitziv, a very beautiful and important interpretation in the Hamegdaver, where the Nitziv says that the Shalom here is not peace from any external enemy, not the relatives of Zimri, not even from the angel of death, but rather an inner peace. Shalom Pnimi, an inner peace. Because they explain, Hamikdavar explains that the gravest threat that Pinchas faced at this moment was something that could have affected him and afflicted him internally. Somebody who did what Pinchas did, such an incredibly violent act, even though it was clearly a legitimate action, clearly moral, clearly endorsed by Hashem in our Psukim, nevertheless, the natural result of such an act would have been to live a life of inner turbulence of anxiety, of having a quick temper, of never being at ease, never being at peace with himself, of being irritable and just unhappy. And therefore he gets the greatest gift, says the Nitziv, that of shalom, of inner peace, that all those natural negative reactions, the natural negative impact or result that his actions should have had on him, Hashem says, I'm intervening to make sure that that does not happen. Even when you do a legitimate and absolutely correct and moral act of violence like Pinchas, it could have negative impact on the person. And therefore Hashem says, despite what could have naturally happened, I, God, am intervening to protect you, to give you an inner peace, not to worry about becoming irritable or upset because of what you've done. Last but not least is the remarkable interpretation of Hashem Shunafal Hirsch, who also seems to explain that it's not so much a gift or a reward, but rather a statement of affirmation, an unambiguous statement affirming the correctness and the morality of Pinchas' action, that it was an action of shalom, even though it looks at first glance to the naked eye as an act of war, of violence. We don't usually think of war or violence or killing as furtherance of peace, says Rav Hirsch, but we make a mistake. True peace, says Rav Hirsch, can only come not between men, but when all mankind are living in consonance and consistent with the values and the laws of Hashem. And therefore, when you have such a violent or should I say, an extreme breach of that standard, the immorality that was being uh, done by Zimri with Cosby and the other Jewish people, which brought this deadly plague. So by halting that, even in such an extreme and violent way, by halting that, Hashem wants us to know that what Pinchas did wasn't just correct or good, but it was actually a truly act of peace. What seems like such an act of war, if you will, killing another person or killing two people, was actually an action of Peace. And all those people who were watching on the side, even if they were sincerely upset by it, but they weren't furthering peace. But in fact, it was Pinchas's action that, even though it was violent, but nevertheless, that was truly an act of peace. His action was the basis of true peace, because true peace sometimes can only be accomplished, so to speak, by the tip of the spear. And Pinchas is an example of that, and Hashem wants us to understand on a deeper level the nature of his action. There's a famous joke in rabbinic circles about the man who comes to the rabbi and says, please, please, can you make me a Kohen? The rabbi says, listen, I can't really do that. It's not in my hands. And the man says, but I'll give you a big donation to the synagogue. The rabbi says, I still can't do it. And he says, but I'll give a really, really big donation to the synagogue. Finally, the rabbi says, well, for a donation like that, you know, I think I'd be able to help you out. And he says, but just let me ask you one question. I didn't know you were so religious. Well, you know, why is this so important to you? He says, you're right, rabbi. It's true. I'm not that religious, but... My father was a Kohen, and I was very close with him, and if it was important to him, it's important to me. I want to be a Kohen like him. The second bracha, the second reward that Pinchas receives is v'haisalo ulazaro acharav bris kuhunas olam. The blessing, the covenant of eternal priesthood, to be a Kohen. And this, of course, raises the question, 
noted by all the earlier Mefarshim, what is the point of this bracha? It's a classic catch-22 Memanoshach. If he wasn't a Kohen, no matter what he did, no matter how big his donation to the synagogue is, no matter how great his heroic actions were, you can't make someone a Kohen if they're not. And if he was a Kohen, which we know he was, not only his father, but his grandfather. The Torah tells us at the outset of, today's, of this week's Parsha, Pinchas ben Lazar ben Aron Kohen. you cannot get better yichus than that. His father was a Lazar, his grandfather was none other than Aron HaKohen. Of course he was a Kohen, so if he was a Kohen, what did he need the bracha for? If he wasn't a Kohen, the bracha wouldn't help, and if, since he is a Kohen, what does he need the bracha for? This is the classic question that has to be contended with. So one answer that's given by Rashi, a very technical answer based on Chazal, is that actually despite his pedigree, despite his yichus, his lineage, he was not a Kohen. That when the Kohanim were inaugurated to serve in the Mishkan, Aaron and his children were all of the ones, and anyone else, uh, Aaron and his children were the ones who were inaugurated to be Kohanim, as well as a promise that any future grandchildren born into the family will also inherit the mantle. However, Rashi explains, there was a quirk. A living grandchild at that time was not inaugurated at the time because it was only Aaron and his children and was not included in the bracha that all future Kohanim born into the family would become able to serve in the kahuna, in the, in the Mishkan. And therefore by a technical glitch, Pinchas and anyone else, if his generation who was alive at the time of the inauguration and the choosing of the Kohanim, was actually left out. So despite his lineage, he was not a Kohen. And therefore, says Rashi, he truly did need this bracha in order to be able to be a Kohen and serve in the Mishkan. That's one answer. A second answer that is suggested by Ramban, Ibn Ezra, and others, is that, well, of course he was a Kohen. His grandfather was Aaron, his father was Elazar. This is a particular bracha. Not just that he'll be a Kohen, that he didn't need, but rather that the predominant number of future Kohanim Gidolim, the high priests, will primarily and predominantly come from his family, be his descendants. And in fact, we have a tradition, Tosfus and Masech the Yuma, on Daftas, quotes a tradition that we have, that almost 20 of the Kohanim Gedolim in the first Beis HaMikdash, and over 80 of the Kohanim Gedolim over the length of the second Beis HaMikdash, were all Mizera Pinchas, were all descendants of Pinchas. And that is the bracha of Kunas Olam, that forever and ever, predominantly the Kohanim Gedolim, the high priest, will be from your family directly, Pinchas. That will be your reward. That was a second answer that is given for what is this bracha. A third answer is suggested, a very powerful one, from the Chizkuni and the Abarbanel and other Mepharshim. And they say again, of course, Pinchas was a Kohen, his grandfather was Aaron, of course he was a Kohen. But this was not a bracha to make him a Kohen. This was a bracha to enable him to remain a Kohen in good standing. After all, the halacha is that a Kohen who kills another person is disqualified from serving in the Mishkan, from serving in the responsibilities of a Kohen. And therefore, Pinchas, even though what he did was correct from a moral perspective, halachic perspective, we see Hashem endorsed his behavior, but nevertheless, a casualty of his initiative and his heroism should have been, by all rights, that he lost his ability to serve as a Kohen to work in the Mishkan. And in fact, therefore, to mitigate against that otherwise natural circumstance and result, says the Cheskuni, says the Barbanel, Hashem intervened with the second bracha to say, despite what should have happened, despite what might happen at other times in history when Kohanim perhaps for legitimate reasons like Pinchas, but still take a life, Kohen Chargas HaNefesh, 
is disqualified from working in the Mishkan or the base of Mikdash, but Pinchas is an exception, the beneficiary of a special bracha. Pinchas did something special for Hashem. Hashem does something special for Pinchas and saves him and allows him to keep his position as a Kohen, what he would have otherwise lost. Last but not least is a, a remarkable interpretation of the Kesav Sofer. And he explains not only this bracha of the Kahuna, but he explains it in a way that fits beautifully with the first uh, bracha, that of Shalom, the one we spoke about yesterday. Says the Ksav Sofer, the nature of a Kohen, his natural tendency, his personality, has to be one who is an Ohev Shalom, Varodev Shalom, like Aaron HaKohen. They have to be lovers of peace, people who pursue peace, people who are calm and nice and get along easily with people. And therefore, Pinchas, who's given the bracha of Shalom, that he would have that natural dispensation, that natural tendency to be like his grandfather, and he would therefore be absolutely appropriate in terms of that default set- setting, that the default setting of the coin has to be the Oyev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. Pinchas exhibited that, and he certainly had that confirmed by his first bracha, the Brisi Shalom. However, the Ksav Sofer explains that that's not entirely enough. That's the default setting of the Kohen. But Kohanim are also the teachers of the Jewish people. We have a tradition. It's not just that they worked in the Mishkan. They also represent Shevet Levi, Shevet Kahuna, the teachers of the Jewish people. And a teacher, says the Ksav Sofer, sometimes has to be demanding, has to have religious zeal, has to have religious passion, has to have the ability to stand for principle, and not compromise. Moreover, has to have the ability to be mochiach, to criticize and to rebuke the nation when necessary. Someone who is oiv shalom, verodev shalom, only might not be up for those parts of the job, not have the stomach for those parts of the job. And therefore you need a second dimension as well, and that is the strong, passionate, zealous, non-compromising personality. Therefore, says Aksav Sofer, when Pinchas did this act of zealotry, it's not that he remained a Kohen despite that, is that that confirmed that he had the dual characteristics necessary to be the ideal Kohen. When it came time to apportion the land of Israel into its various sections, each tribe, each Shevet getting the appropriate section for them, the Torah tells us towards the end of Parak Chavav, Lerav Tarbet Nachlaso Ulamaat Tamit Nachlaso, that to the bigger tribes they should get a bigger land, a bigger portion, something that will be able to contain their more sizable population, and to the smaller tribes they should get a smaller amount of land. The Sfasemes in a piece from the year 5637, Tafresh Lamed Zion asks the question, why necessary for the second half of that phrase? Once you've already told us, that the bigger tribes should get a bigger portion, it is self-understood, therefore, that the smaller tribes will get a smaller portion. It's not necessary to go the extra length to then add that explicitly. If the bigger tribes are getting the bigger portion, obviously the smaller tribes are getting a smaller portion. What is, what is going on here? So the Sfasemes, as he is wont to do, uh, despite asking a, what you could say is a pshat question, but his answer is anything but pshat. He sees in this pasuk and in these key phrases actual hints to deeper spiritual messages and categories. And he explains as follows. Fundamentally, he says, in the big picture, there are two pathways or two different approaches to Avodas Hashem, to a life of serving Hashem. One can be called Marbe, and the other 
mamit. One is looking for expansive opportunities to grow, not just to grow in an internal, private way with Hashem, but to make a big impact on the world and to accomplish great things. That's marbe. However, he says, there's another derech, which is equally valid and legitimate, which he calls ma'amit. Not in the sense of not being interested to grow or minimal growth, but rather one who's looking to have that growth as a more private, tsanua relationship with Hashem. Not necessarily looking to make a big impact, to change the world, to move the world, but rather in a much smaller, self-contained, modest way to live a life of righteousness and spiritual growth, but a much more modest, if you will, and as I say, if you even hidden way. Says the Sfas Emes, each of these can find sources and indications in Tanakh and in Chazal. The Mamit approach, Moshe as a paradigm for humility, etc. That's you know obviously something that the Torah approves of. But he says we should realize that that Marba approach, the one who looks for great ambitions and to do great things, that is also one which in fact can find sources in Chazal and in Tanakh. As the Pasuk says, Vayigba libo bedarche Hashem. Usually we think of Gava Salev as an arrogant uh, description, as a description of arrogance or something negative. And yet here the Pasuk describes it as a form of Darche Hashem, a form of worship. Vayigba libo bedarche Hashem. There are people who have that kind of ambition and they use that and channel that ambition for Darche Hashem. Says the Svasemes, Anava, humility, being quiet, being internal, that's clearly, he says, the default preference. It's certainly safer. But, he says, you should realize that if a person has the personality of the Vayigba Libo, that's also legitimate, as long as it's being nurtured and applied in a sincere way. As the Gemara says, Echad Hamarbe, Echad Hamamit, Ubalvad Shechavein Libo, now that's not what the, in the context, that's not, our topic is not what's being discussed by that Maimar Chazal. But in a play on words, says the Sfasemes, this is relevant to our discussion as well. Echad HaMarbe, the person who has that big, expansive, more ambitious approach and more public approach to life, Ve'echad HaMamit, is just as good as the one who is more internal, more modest, more self-focused, more private, as long as they're both the Shem Shemaim, they're considered both legitimate. Adding on to this point, the Sfasemes quotes the statement in Chazal, in Mesechas Makos, as well as in Midrashim, that Chazal say, Whatever a person's natural inclination, whichever way a person wants to go in life, Molichanoso, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will provide him opportunities to develop, to be successful, to travel in that way. And the mitzvot that a person does, and the Torah that that person learns, will lead him to deepen and more fully develop that particular style. And therefore it says, the Sfas two people could learn the same Torah or do the same mitzvah, but if one person is a mom-eat person, then that experience will be molichim in the way that he wants to go. It'll help him deepen his personal, more private relationship with Hashem. And the very same Torah, very same mitzvah, if Don L'shem Shemayim can help a Marba personality grow his ambitions, his spiritual ambitions, and help expand his profile and his impact in the world. Each case, whether it's the Harchavas Halev 
or the Mamit Sanua and Anava. In each case, says the Svasemes, Hashem will help us. As he says so beautifully, Anava. person wants to go in the Anava private way, Hashem provides him every opportunity. But similarly, someone who has the approach of Bechinas Hamarbe, each way, Hashem helps us. He then adds one final point, which is very interesting. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu in Devarim says, Anything really hard, he tells the judges, you come to me. And Rashi quotes from Chazal and Parsha that the reason he didn't know the answer to the question of the daughters of Tzolofchad seems like it was a punishment for being arrogant when he made that statement. Says the Svasem, it's a different shot. Of course, Moshe wasn't being a Balgaiva. From his perspective, everyone understands that everything I know is from Hashem. It's not about me. Nevertheless, because he asked the question in that way, Hashem provided him an opportunity, which is not as a punishment, but intended to help him to bring out his Hanava to remind him and remind everyone that again it's all from Hashem to strengthen and further deepen Moshe's humility. When the Torah records the reward that is given to Pinchas for his heroic action in killing Zimri and stopping the deadly plague, the Torah goes out of its way to trace his lineage all the way back to his famous grandfather. Torah tells us, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharon hakohen, heshivas chamasim al bnei Yisrael b'kanoas kenasi b'socham v'lokiz lisias bnei Yisrael b'kenasi. It was Pinchas, not only the son of Elazar, but the grandson of Aaron hakohen, who turned back Hashem's wrath from upon the Jewish people when he zealously avenged Hashem's vengeance from among them, and as a result, Hashem did not consume the Jewish people out of vengeance. Rashi quotes from the Gemara in Sanhedrin and the Sifrei in noticing the fact that the Torah is going out of its way to establish his lineage all the way back to his grandfather. And Chazal explained here as quoted by Rashi that members of the other tribes of other Shvatim were denigrating and humiliating Pinchas and referring to him as a Ben Puti, the son of a Puti. That is a reference, a shortened version and reference to the name Putiel, which was one of the names of Yisro, who, as Chazal tell us, was his maternal grandfather. His Pinchas' father may have been Elazar, but his mother was the daughter of Yisro. And therefore, the other Shvatim were humiliating and denigrating him by saying, look at this Ben Puti, highlighting the fact that his maternal grandfather was Yisro, and the name Puti and Putiel as Rashi actually uh, quotes in Sefer Shmos in Parshish Yisro, is a reference to the fact that in the first chapters of Yisro's life, he was mefateh, he fattened animals to Avodazara. We know that Yisro was an Oved Avodazara, he was actually a high priest, before eventually converting and joining the Jewish people. So now, generations later, his grandson has this tremendous act of courage, heroism, and righteous zealotry, and kills Zimri. And yet, members of the other tribes are making fun of him and saying that this is unbecoming behavior and that the behavior evidently is a result of the fact that he has very impure lineage, that his maternal grandfather was originally an Ovedev Arazara, and you see that that latent uh, genetic uh, impact is coming to fruition in this terrible, violent, and misguided behavior having killing Zimri. This is the incredible message that Rashi quotes in from the name of Chazal. And therefore, says Rashi, the Torah went out of its way to establish his ancestry 
all the way going back to Aaron. Don't think that he just has this quote-unquote tainted lineage. lineage. In fact, he is Yichus, his lineage goes all the way back to the most prestigious of all sources, that of Aaron HaKohen. That is the Rashi at the opening of our Parsha. Rav Ruvain Katz, in his very beautiful sefer, Dudae Ruvain, quotes and wonders the following. He says, I don't understand. How would this help Pinchas, that now we publicly acknowledge his descendant on his father's side from our own? Presumably, the Shvatim who were making fun of him already knew that. It's not like this is some new piece of information that would have insulated Pinchas, to me, that would have insulated um, Pinchas, yes, from being made fun of. He was being made fun of despite the fact that obviously everyone knew his grandfather on his father's side was Aaron. So why does the Torah writing it, how would that somehow help him and save him from the denigration, spare him the humiliation, the fact that people are making fun of his other grandfather? So Rav Katz explains that in fact, this is part of a larger point. Whenever we see the action from a leader, or really anyone, we can interpret it positively or negatively. And whether we interpret an action positively or negatively will mostly depend on prior biases and our previous opinions. As a result, we often see in a given situation, half the people or some large group see it as positive based on their previous opinions or experiences, or another half or another large group of people will see it negatively. So too, says Rav Katz, the same thing happened with Pinchas. Some said, wow, look at what he was willing to do, all in the name of Kiddush Hashem and saving the Jewish people. But evidently, he says, other people were looking at what Pinchas did, said he went too far, how could he do that, that's too violent, that's too extreme. Everyone agreed, says Rav Katz, that this was objectively an act of extreme religious zealotry. But still, the debate ensued. Was his act of religious zealotry and extremism coming from a holy place, a place of Kedusha, that just could simply not bear to see such an act of perversion in public chil Hashem? Or was it, in fact, a completely unbridled and uncontrolled extremism, wholly unbecoming of the grandson of Aharon? And this led them to suggest that it must be that it's coming from Yisro's influence the other ancestors, the one who were originally idol worshippers. Therefore, the Torah is emphasizing Pinchas's yichus and lineage and its connection to Aaron, his grandfather, to underscore the fact that this act of religious zealotry comes from a place of kedusha and holiness. And dafka, it comes from the fact that he was Aaron's grandson and has nothing to do with any of Odazar influence or who his maternal grandfather was. In other words, even someone who was a descendant of, a grandson of, Aaron Cohen, who's famously the Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom, as the Mishnah tells us in Perkyavos. He loved peace, he pursued peace. Even such a person's grandson, Pinchas, realizes that in some situations, in the rarest of cases, even those who love peace sometimes know that they need a different approach. As, of course, Shlomo HaMelech taught us, yes, often it is Eis Lehov, it is the time to love, but there also are other times where different things are called for, and it is an Eis Lesnow. Rav Katz continues by quoting a fascinating and really wonderful insight of the Ksav Sofer to that aforementioned Mishnah in Perkyavos, where we are told that Aharon was the Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. And he notes, as other Mepharshim do as well, why is there a double Lashon? Aharon loved peace and he pursued peace. Isn't loving peace imply that he pursued peace? And the Ksav Sofer has a very original and creative interpretation. It's actually two different things. Not that he loved peace and pursued that end, but rather sometimes he was Rodef Shalom. He banished Shalom. Sometimes he loved peace and that was appropriate and he did everything he could to bring peace, but other times even Aaron Cohen realized that peace and harmony was not what's called for. Sometimes what's called for is being pers- is 
running away from peace, being rodefit. And in fact, sometimes Aaron needed to do that, and that's in fact what, Pin, what his grandson Pinchas understood exactly in this case. That this was a time not for Ahava Shalom, but for Rodev Shalom. That yes, sometimes you need to pursue peace, but sometimes you need to banish peace. That sometimes in terms of the long-term and ultimate religious goals, that is what, necess- what was necessary. In the Torah's discussion in our Parsha of the Karbanos, there's a very well-known pasuk, Milvad Olas Haboker, Asher Olas HaTamid, Ta'asu Es Eila, that in addition to the Karban Tamid, you also offer Eila, you also bring the Karban Musaf. And based on the construct of this pasuk, the Mishnah very famously in Masech Tezvachim, tells us that this pasuk is the source for the well-known and very broadly applicable rule of Tadir v'she'enu tadir, tadir kodem. The idea that when you have to pick between two mitzvos, you're not sure which one to do first, frequency, tadirus, is the way we decide which one is first. And therefore says the Mishnah, kol tadir mechavero kodem chavero, tamidim kodem musafim. As we see in our Parsha, the assumption, the implicit assumption of the Pasuk, as Rashi pointed out, is that the tamidim are first brought and then the musaf. And you see, says the Mishnah, the reason is because the carbon Tamid is more frequent. It's brought every day. The Musaf is only brought on special days. And if you have two special Karbanos, Shabbos comes out on Rosh Chodesh, or should I say Rosh Chodesh comes out on Shabbos, so you have two Musafs, Shabbos comes first, Musafay Shabbos, Kodun Musafay Rosh Chodesh, because Shabbos is more tadir than Rosh Chodesh. What about Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Chodesh comes first because it's more Tadir. And that's the general principle in the Mishnah and Zvachim says that the source of this principle of Tadir Vishnu Tadir, Tadir Kodem, the idea that we give priority and precedence to the one that's more frequent, the source of that is this Pasuk in our Parsha and Parsha's Pinchas, Mavad Allah Saboker Shalas Tamid Ta'asu Es Eila. Obviously, the issue of the Karbonos is not as relevant or practical in our daily lives, but Tadir does come up also in many different occasions. Perhaps the one that's uh, most common, uh, most frequent, uh, no pun intended, is at least for men who put on talus and tefillin, Shulchan Aruch tells us, which one do you put on first? The talus first or the tefillin first? The Shulchan Aruch brings down in Simen Chavhei that you put on the talus first. And the Beis Yosef brings two reasons for this. One might be that there's some symbolic superiority to the mitzvah of tzitzis, because tzitzis is considered equivalent through gematria and other such as, or other symbolisms to all of the mitzvot, tzitzis is shkula l'kol tarakula. But the second reason, and I think a reason that's more well known, is that tzitzis or the talus is more frequent, it's more tadir than the tefillin. We wear talus and tzitzis every day, whereas tefillin we know there are certain days, including every Shabbos, in which we don't. So that's a very common example of where tadir plays a role. Another question that is very fascinating that the postcom discusses whether Tadir is merely a way of deciding what comes first when I can do two mitzvot, or could it be the way that we decide which mitzvah to do if I'm in a conflict and I can only do one mitzvah? An example of this comes up if there is a day, could be a Shabbos or other such days, in which I have not daven Mincha or Musaf yet, Mincha or Musaf I haven't done yet, and it's very, very close to sunset. And once it's Shkia, once it's sunset, I won't be able to daven Mincha, I won't be able to daven Musaf, and there's only enough time for me to do one of those. Which one should I do? So this is a very interesting machlokas. The Mishnah Brewer brings this down in Simon Reish Pevav. And there is a major machlokas at poskim. Prominent poskim such as the Shagas Aryeh, the Shochan Harav say, in this case, even though Mincha is clearly more frequent than Musaf, as the Mishnah already told us, 
you would actually pick Musaf as the one feeler to say. For the simple reason that if you don't say Musaf, there's no way to make that up. It's just too late, you'll miss it, you'll have done the Avera of not doing Musaf. However, if you haven't Davin Mincha, and you have a good excuse for not having Davin Mincha, we have an escape clause, we have a mulligan that we can pull, we can do it again, which is called Tashlumen, we can do two Marevs and make it up, and therefore we won't really have lost it. And therefore says the Mishnabrura who paskins this way, that that is considered really the relevant argument and determining factor. The fact that Mincha is more frequent is irrelevant, it's not relevant in this kind of case. However, the Mishnabrura does note that other poskim disagree with this, and not just other poskim, very prominent poskim. The note of Yehuda and his commentary to the Shulchan Aruch, as well as Rabbi Kiva Eger, both argue and say that based on the fact that Mincha is more tadir, therefore, even in this case where we can't do both, we can only pick one, we will pick Mincha, and that should be the one that you say based on tadir. Very, very interesting machlokes. Perhaps this machlokes is based on a more fundamental question, which is raised by Rabbi Hanan Wasserman in his Kovit Shurim Tepsachim. How do we understand this rule of the Mishnah, this rule from our Parsha of Tadir Vashenu, Tadir, Tadir Kodem? It's possible that we could take a much more minimalist or conservative approach and say all it is, all it is, is a Seder Dvarim. It's teaching us a precedence when you have two things that would otherwise be in conflict. We have this in all sorts of areas of life where you could have two things you know, happening or occurring at once and we have to decide who to give precedence to. And whatever reason we do, we give it to one over the other, but that doesn't necessarily have any broader implications. It could be a very narrow and localized halacha. You know, for example, I live in Israel, so if two cars uh, want to go into the traffic circle or need to go in the same, you know, or going in opposite directions, so if one of the cars is already in the traffic circle, that car automatically is supposed to get uh, precedence. It doesn't teach you anything broader about traffic, and it doesn't, doesn't teach you anything broader about the two people involved. It's just a specific, narrow application of how do we avoid conflict, hopefully accidents, and we have to make up a rule. Could be that's all Tadr is. Or you could say no, the very fact that the more frequent one is considered, goes first, that itself might indicate something more fundamental, that frequency determines importance. And then maybe that shows that that is more important. That suffix that Rabbi Hanan has about how to understand Tadir is very likely at the heart of this question. If you see it as merely a way of determining precedence when you have conflict, so then it's irrelevant to decide what to do when one mitzvah can be done and the other one can't, when you can only daven muncha or musaf. It's only relevant if you can do both and you have to know which one to do first. But if you have to pick one, Tadir, according to this first approach, is irrelevant. It won't help us at all. On the other hand, if you understand that what's Tadir and Tadir Kodem is indicating and implies that in fact the more frequent mitzvah is actually more important, then this rule is just as relevant and just as applicable in determining what to do if you can only do one of the mitzvahs.